Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you not familiar with our broadcast, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It's your questions on the Bible that uh, basically control our conversation, give us our content, uh, lead us in the directions uh, that uh, we prayerfully uh, believe the Lord wants us to go on each and every edition of uh, A Reason for Hope. So if you've got a question about a passage of the Bible you'd like to explain, how to apply the Bible in your life personally. Maybe a tough question or two has been uh, lobbed your way by a skeptic or a non-believer, or uh, maybe you've always had a tough question about the Christian faith, and it's been uh, percolating in the back of your mind. Uh, we'd like to think of this as a no-harm, no-foul, non-judgmental place mm-hmm. for you to get those questions answered. So uh, bring them on. We would love to hear from you. The only standard for our questions is uh, just make sure it's a sincere question. If you're looking for an answer straight from the Scriptures, We'll be happy to provide it. number of different ways uh, you can ask access the broadcast. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, 106.7 FM and 690 AM here in Tucson, uh, just a programming note for you. You're listening to a program that is a day delayed, but if you'd like to get a question to us, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to uh, watch our program live, uh, as it is unfolding, uh, we've got a number of different internet platforms where we are not only heard but seen uh, each and every day. You can join us on Facebook uh, at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can join us on our uh, uh, Reason for Hope uh, site on uh, YouTube. Uh, we are also available uh, on our church website, and that is available for you at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Any or all of those were available, I guess, on Roku and Apple Plus. If you'd like to watch us on the big screen, you can do so there. Uh, you can also download our Calvary Christian Fellowship app and uh, be uh, tuned in and uh, alerted for uh, whenever we go live. Uh, we do go live each and every day at 5 p.m. I am joined here today by our guest host, Pinch Hitter, uh, my normal right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards, still uh, recovering from a bit of a bug. I think he picked up at a uh, youth uh, overnight. A lock-in. Uh, yeah, a lock-in, <laughs> and apparently some other things were locked in aside from the youth. Uh, and uh, we're praying, uh, Sean, as you're watching the broadcast, that you're feeling better. Please be praying for him. He's making a comeback. Sure, he's going to be back in the saddle again on Monday. But till then, my co-host is... Uh, uh, award-winning magician and uh, illusionist. Should I call you a magician or an illusionist? Is there a preference there? Not really for me, but <clears throat> for those watching, probably stick with illusionist. Illusionist, <laughs> right. I just don't want to step on any woke toes and offending the uh, illusionist community out there. It's always good uh, to take the high road. So uh, again, uh, Adrian, uh, you've uh, literally shared the good news of Jesus Christ all around the world in a lot of different uh, ways, some uh, very interesting settings, uh, defending uh, the uh, the authenticity and uh, the authority of God's Word, as well as reaching out with the love of Jesus Christ. So if you've got uh, questions for us, we are here to tackle those questions, and you're going to be uh, sort of playing the air traffic controller for the questions yeah. coming in. So get your questions to Adrian, and we'll be happy to tackle them. Uh, before we go any further on the broadcast, always good 
to invite the unseen third party here, and that is the Lord himself. Mm. Adrian, would you like to pray for us? I'd be delighted. Father God, thank you for, again, the privilege to be here and share your love, your truth, and uh, give us wisdom, guidance as we field questions from those watching and in addition to addressing some of the topics of the day. Um, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay. Well, uh, again, uh, fascinating thing. I, I guess this doesn't really fit uh, the category uh, specifically of a prophecy update, but uh, certainly caught my eye earlier. You know, one of the things that we do here on the broadcast is try to keep you up to speed, especially about events surrounding Israel. Uh, as Don Stewart, uh, our good friend and uh, classic Bible expositor and uh, apologist, uh, often says about prophecy, uh, when it comes to God's plan to right this world gone wrong for Jesus' return, uh, we look at Israel as the hour hand, we look at Jerusalem as the minute hand, and the Temple Mount itself as the second hand, a great way to stay on top of things. So uh, we uh, peruse the internet, a number of different sites about what's going on in Israel. Uh, among them is the online version of the Jerusalem Post. Well, Adrian, imagine my uh, shock and surprise today when uh, the lead trending article on the Jerusalem Post website uh, was an op-ed written by Sherwin Pomerantz with this uh, engaging headline, Is God Punishing the United States of America? Now, this is a little bit of a variation in theme from the standard question we get on this broadcast quite a bit. You know, where is the United States in biblical prophecy? Mm. Here's the short answer, we're not mentioned. Now, the speculations as to why we're not mentioned uh, could be uh, multiple in, uh, in their, uh, their iterations, but uh, we really believe uh, that uh, there's three possibilities why the United States mm -hmm. isn't mentioned in prophecy. Number one, uh, the possibility that uh, the United States is not around. Uh, by the time the uh, tribulation described in the scripture is there, uh, that maybe we've been taken out in some kind of a limited war, or maybe we've just passed from the scene as far as being a dominant world power and are one of uh, many nations that are in the thrall of the Antichrist that time. Uh, entirely possible mm -hmm. that something like that could happen. Uh, the second possibility is uh, the idea that uh, just like uh, at one point the sun never set on the British Empire, they had their day and sort of passed from the scene, uh, the United States may go the same way. But uh, there's a third possibility that I think is more optimistic, and that is uh, that when the rapture of the church hits, uh, you know, we've shared before the, the latest statistics from the Barna organization, some 54 million professing, self-identifying, evangelical, Bible-believing hmm. Christians in the United States. Well, imagine if, um, say for sake of argument, uh, Barna's maybe one-tenth correct. Uh, what would happen to this country if suddenly 5.4 million people vanished without a trace? Now, when the World Trade Center was hit back on 9-11, uh, barely 3,000, a little under 3,000 people lost their lives, and that plunged our economy into a tailspin for the better part of three years. That's 3,000 people. Now imagine mm -hmm. 5.4 million people, just for sake of argument. Maybe Barna's half right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 25 million uh, people suddenly gone. Uh, you know, I tend to believe uh, optimistically that the United States would be harder hit by this particular event than a lot of places in this world. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa probably would be hit even harder from what mm -hmm. I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, as far as 
Western Europe itself, you've been there, Adrian, kind of a cold place spiritually. It is. <clears throat> I, by some estimates, it's getting to the point where it's less than 7% churched, yeah. whatever that might mean. But if you think how many Americans identify as churched or Christian on the broad spectrum, it's a lot more than 54 million. Right. But <clears throat> in Europe, it's it's less than 7% just on the broad identifying as a Christian. So 7% of people, you know, vanish. Um, probably. Maximum. <laughs> uh, a, a difficult time, but certainly something they could bounce back from. United States, I think, would be hit a lot harder. So, yeah, you that's, know. That's more than 10% of the population. And, 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 you know, the other reason that I tend to take that point of view is I think it tends to get our attention on all the right things. Uh, if that is in fact the case, then the best way for me to make sure that happens is for me to share my faith mm-hmm. with somebody who doesn't know the Lord. You know, it's an encouragement for us uh, to get out of the pews, uh, not put our light under a bushel basket, and share the Lord. But uh, in the interim, uh, you know, the, the the question comes up: Is God punishing the United States of America? Is judgment coming to America? There's a famous Billy Graham quote from 1972. Mm-hmm where he said that if uh, God doesn't uh, judge America soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of happy that Billy went home to his reward because things have gotten a lot crazier here than they even, uh, as crazy as things were in 72, can't hold a candle to that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, are we in a place where God is punishing the United States of America? Sherwin Pomerantz uh, wrote this. He said, I'm certainly not one to dare to assume what goes on in the mind of the God I believe in and consider it a bit arrogant to go down that path. Well, so far, so good. Nevertheless, at the risk of being labeled an old fool, it is a challenge for me to believe that the series of plagues, quote unquote, that have befallen the United States of America as of late are not some part of a heavenly master plan. Well, uh, Mr. Pomerantz goes on and talks about the role that the United States played after World War II with the Marshall Plan, uh, with opposing the expansion of communism, uh, bringing in an order uh, to the world. Uh, There were those that would say uh, that we were ugly Americans and, uh, you know, again, exerting our power and control beyond what we should. But uh, that arrangement certainly did put off a nuclear war. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were, uh, those would say that, uh, you know, economically and, uh, culturally, uh, those were good years, but, uh, the United States and its role in the world is beginning to fall apart. Now, there are some who just say, well, same thing happened to Britain. You know, uh, the arguments are, are many as to why Britain fell by the wayside. Two world wars will do that to you. But uh, the underpinnings of that was essentially you can't have a, uh, a, a state that is devoted, in a sense, to social welfare and be a world-dominating empire at the same time. you got to choose one or the other. And uh, Britain made their choice. Uh, you know, again, the, uh, the impact of, uh, of uh, you know, just a, a number of the, uh, the writers that came up in the late 1800s and so forth, uh, you know, really uh, made an impact. And uh, Britain pretty much lost the stomach for uh, defending its empire. And piece by piece, the British Empire fell by the wayside. You know, there are those who say that, uh, you know, the United States has gone the same way. Uh, interesting, uh, Doc, uh, Mr. Pomerant says that 77 years after World War II, the United States seems to be falling apart. 
uh, U.S. foreign policy changed through the Obama years. We started to move away from the idea of being the world's police officer. Uh, countries do alter their foreign policies without their cultures going downhill. And over these past 13 years, with the advent of the smartphone and the exponential rise of social networking, hardly a day goes by where you don't see some catastrophic event or trend that does not bode well for the continuing success of the United States. And uh, again, uh, Mr. Pomerantz cites uh, the civil war that's going on between Republicans and Democrats. There's uh, reaching across the aisle politically, uh, he says, is uh, something that just really doesn't happen anymore. Although I would question that. Uh, I think both sides are all in favor of uh, uh, raising taxes and uh, busting budgets. Uh, It's just a question of how fast you really want to go. He says the U.S. mass shooting crisis and gun ownership is a sign of God's disfavor. And I I won't wade into all of that because I think that is one of his weakest arguments. Interesting, uh, one of the things he brings up is something that you will hear in the more kind of uh, fringe areas of uh, of prophecy on the air, that uh, we're having catastrophic weather in the United States. Uh, He would say that the United States, on average, experiences fewer than 1,500 tornadoes a year through June. There's already been 940 reported. Uh, The country is on track to see 2,000 and more, a 33% increase. Well, once again, tornadoes tend to happen in warmer weather uh, we'll tend to see them not increase, but fall by the wayside as the months go on. Mm-hmm. Um, Europe is going through the worst drought in 500 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're actually finding old Roman things and uh, German submarines <laughs> parked in rivers and things like this. So, you know, again, uh, they talks about the homeless crisis, 161,000 homeless. Uh, why is this so bad? In the United States, he says, if one accepts the God construct, for the 70 years after World War II, America continued to carry out God's plan, creating an order in the world that never existed before, and life was good. Well, that might be painting with too broad a brush or wearing rose-colored glasses the more you study uh, what has gone on over those years. But he said, there's never been a time in post-Civil War history as now where the United States has been so broken where so many things seem to be going wrong simultaneously and where the political leadership seems powerless to deal with all of it. It's almost as if God is now expressing displeasure with his servant, the United States, on the course that it's taken. Uh, The thing that I liked about the end of his article, which kind of surprised me, was uh, he quoted uh, an event that happened under the the, uh, military leadership of uh, George Patton, Uh, when Patton was the head of the U.S. Third Army in Europe in World War II in December 1944. uh, Fog, clouds, rain, and snow over Europe were hampering U.S. war efforts. A frustrated Patton contacted Chaplain James O'Neill and asked for a prayer for good weather that would improve the chances of victory. In the presence of Patton, uh, there was only one response the chaplain could offer, and that was, yes, sir. So he wrote the prayer. It was distributed to the 275,000 Third Army troops, along with a Christmas greeting that read, 
Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains uh, which we, with which we have had to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee that armed with thy power we had, may advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies and establish your justice among men and nations. Well, famously, the weather cleared for the next six days and Patton's forces uh, were victorious and vanquished the German army. Uh, it, it's interesting, uh, again, Mr. Pomerantz writes, when Hope alluded him, Patton, the battle-hard cynic, asked his troops to turn to a higher force. When he later, uh, when he later said about people in such a quandary is noteworthy, he said, watch what people are cynical about and one can often discover what they lack. Hmm. A very interesting statement. Hmm. He says, maybe the time has come for everyone to bury the cynicism and look up. There is certainly no downside in doing so. While there is every possibility, our prayers may be answered. Um, Sherwin Pomerantz is the CEO of Atid EDI Limited, a Jerusalem-based international business development consultancy. He's the former president of the Association of Americans and Canadians in Israel, the board chair of the Paredes Institute of Jewish Studies, and president of Congregation Ohel Nakma in Jerusalem. So uh, from his point of view, perhaps the United States is experiencing God's punishment. Now, what would be a biblical response to this? I mean, I, I like a number of things that he said. Certainly, uh, General Patton's comment about uh, finding out the things that people are most cynical about, uh, you usually find out what they lack. I think uh, that might be a very interesting diagnosis of a lot of the traffic we see mm -hmm. on the Internet. But when God judges, you know, the, the big question is, uh, you know, in these days when we are so scientific, so materialistic in our point of view, if God were to judge America, like he, say, for instance, judged Israel or Israel's enemies down through time, would we even recognize it? It's hard to say, <clears throat> because uh, it seems like from biblical history, God always had the habit of sending warnings, and every now and then people, individuals, would catch on but the nation still got judged, and God was always very patient. And I would think that if, if God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, even if there was just ten righteous people there, then I would hope that uh, the, whole, the nation as a whole would, would still be uh, in a I'm giving you time to repent mode. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> I wonder if there is still room for repentance, if there's room for a... Uh, Second Chronicles seven, you know, if my people will humble themselves and pray, yeah, kind of an idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing that I think can throw us a bit as far as answering that question is God punishing the United States. Uh, is that sometimes I think we go full Cecil B. DeMille when we think of God's punishment. I mean, we we're we're looking for fire raining down from mm -hmm. heaven and a voice thundering from the sky. Uh, you know, repent and and so forth. As opposed to maybe just the consequences of sin. Well, I think that's a biggie. You know, in the, the book of Romans, uh, we're told how God judges sin in terms of this world. You know, how God has been about the business of expressing his wrath uh, against rebellious man. 
in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, we're told, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Literally, they're, they're, they're put in a box and they're sitting on the lid. They don't want God's truth to get out. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And it talks about them being without excuse. They did not glorify God, nor were thankful, became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools, changed the glory of the incorruptible God to an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. But here's the, the, the uh, money line in this, if you want to use that term. Uh, verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to uh, dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature uh, rather than the creator is blessed forever. And then this phrase repeats, for then God gave them up, God gave them over. Uh, you know, if you don't want to recognize God in your life, God will say, all right, you don't want to recognize me in, in, in your life. You don't want you know, for instance, the uh, famous 1962 Supreme Court decision brought by the uh, lawsuit of Madeleine Murray O'Hare mm -hmm. that uh, banned prayer from public schools. Uh, since then, we've taken that and we've sort of rode with it. Uh, we've pretty much tried to scrub any real mention of God from the public square. Uh, in fact, uh, every New Year's Eve, you know, I think it's fascinating that right after the ball drops in New York, Right after uh, that celebration, they play New York, New York, and then the next song they always play every New Year's Eve is John Lennon's Imagine. Really? Imagine there's no heaven. It's wow. easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today, and it goes on. And no religion, too, and so on. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, towards the end of his life, Lennon sort of repudiated that song, but others have taken that torch. And it's almost like we're saying at the start of this year, God, we don't need you. We can have a brotherhood of man all by ourselves. And when we have this attitude, um, God, in a sense, says, all right, go ahead. It's fascinating even to look at the history of Israel through that lens. Hmm. Uh, you know, every time Israel got too big for their britches, you know, a great example of this is the book of Judges. Uh, in the book of Judges, uh, you know, it's been called the book of seven cycles because there is a predictable pattern that is uh, put forth during this time. Uh, you know, the people of Israel get into a situation where they're very comfortable, they're very prosperous materially. They begin to forget about God. Uh, they start to worship idols and uh, act like the other nations all around them. And God says, fine, I'll take my protecting hand away from you, a uh, outside uh, entity like the Midianites or the Philistines uh, oppresses Israel. Israel finally gets to the bottom of it, calls out to God. God raises up a judge who supernaturally intervenes, defeats the enemy of Israel, and for a time, Israel turns and serves the true and living God. Then they gradually forget, and then they turn to idols, and the cycle repeats. Uh, the, the sad repeating line that we find in Judges, there was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we see this, this picture of the people of Israel turning away and saying, no, we want to be like other nations. Even their, their request for a king was, we want to be like other nations, we want to have a king. Uh, and as soon as they do that, God says, all right, you want to be like other nations? Be like other nations. 
But if you want to go play with the big boys and you don't want my protection, good luck. Because it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. You get the big boy consequences. Yeah, and uh, big boys like Babylon came rolling in, and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the, the Romans and so forth. And, uh, and, and so we, we see that pattern going on. How does this apply to the United States? Well, you know, I think if we continue to say to God, no, God, we don't want you in our lives. And I know some of you out there might be saying, well, I think, Scott, you're being a little too harsh. You know, most people are, are okay with the idea of a God. They're fine with a God of their own making, uh, of their own mind, a God that would never contradict them and always agrees with everything that they think, that uh, basically preaches the gospel according to Billy Joel. Don't go change yeah. it to try and please me, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, people don't have a problem with a God like that but the God of the Bible that makes moral demands of us. The God of the Bible that says, you're not right with me, you need to do a 180, you're going in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. not just uh, spiritually, but morally and in and, and every other way. Uh, we don't like that. Uh, and uh, we want someone who's going to do it our way. And, and so, you know, you, you talk about biblical prophecy, you know, there's a fascinating statement that Jesus made in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and verse 43, he said, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. In other words, we don't want Jesus Christ, right? We don't want him to be running the show. And, and isn't it funny how uh, one of the buzzwords that I'm seeing online is the horror, the horror of Christian nationalism. Oh, gosh. <laughs> You've seen some of that? Yeah, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it means somebody that, like, takes the Bible seriously yeah, or something. I believe in the Bible, and I care about my neighborhood. Oh, yeah. I'm evil nationalist now. Yeah, I, I might uh, run for school board because I'm concerned about, oh, you're an evil nationalist. You're a theocrat. You're going to try to bring in a handmaid's tale and have all the women dressed the same way and, and, and so on. <laughs> Uh, you That's know, the suppressing I, of the truth in unrighteousness, yeah. in, in action. So, you know, we, we have these people that say, no, we don't want Jesus Christ. But understand something. When you say no to God, uh, you're not saying yes to nothing. You're saying yes to something else. And Jesus said, ultimately, uh, if you don't want Jesus Christ, guess what? You're going to have the Antichrist. He's going to come along and for at least three and a half years, fulfill all your, your wishes, fulfill all your dreams, uh, not require you to change your lifestyle whatsoever. Mm. Uh, the three and a half year mark when he declares himself to be God, I think he's going to be a little bit more demanding. But the, the, the bottom line is, um, is God judging the United States? Well, I would say, how many uh, abortions have there been since Roe versus Wade was made the law of the land? I had read a conservative estimate of 62 million. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the... Uh, the That's famous, infanticide. Yeah. The, the, the famous French writer, Albert Camus, who uh, started out as an atheist, but uh, at the end of his life actually made a profession of faith in Christ, uh, had a very fascinating line about this. He said, I tell you a secret, my friend. Do not wait for Judgment Day. I tell you, it happens every day. Mm. And I think this giving over that we see, that giving over principle, 
if we say to God, God, I don't want you in my life. God, I want things my way. God, uh, confirm my prejudices. Mm. God, send people into my life that won't call me out when I'm getting off the path, but will just confirm uh, what I always wanted to do. Uh, you know, even in Christian circles, you know, don't expose me to truth that challenges me. Instead, send me uh, uh, people that will tickle my ears and just make me feel good. You know, let me judge a church situation by coming out and going, oh, I feel so happy and, and so carefree as a result of all of that. You know, I'm, my life's not going to change, but uh, boy, that was a great experience. I prefer to feel uncomfortable in church. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a balance there. You know, we don't want to become so negative that, uh, that we think, oh, you know, the only time God's spoken to us is if we feel like we've been given a pretty good trip Spanking. to the woodshed. <laughs> But the other side of it is this. If we don't want God and you don't want his truth, um, you're going to say yes to something less. And, you know, we've heard of godlessness, and that sounds kind of like the the old playboy mentality and all that stuff. Mm. But really, I think God punishes not just nations, but individuals in that same way. If you don't want God working in your life, you don't want God uh, leading your life, you don't want to walk in God's ways, God is a perfect gentleman, and he will request, he will uh, honor your uh, perfect, uh, your your free will in a, in a perfect way. You don't want to walk with me? Don't walk with me. But don't be surprised when I take all my good and perfect gifts with me. So uh, fascinating little article there in uh, the Jerusalem Post. Anything you'd add to that, Adrian? I, I think of parenting. You know, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. With some disciplinarian personalities here and there, step family members and so on, and there came a point where you reach a certain age where even if you weren't an adult, there was that way of disciplining a child ultimately by saying, okay, fine, you're out. It's not a whooping. It's not, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to just release you. Mm. Go out there. You're no longer welcome in my home and go do your own thing. And it's always a catastrophe, and there's always, not always, but uh, sadly not always, but there comes that moment where a, a, an ignorant, rebellious child realizes, I'm in big trouble, I can't do this, and comes back and is willing to submit to the, to the laws of the land, so to speak. And <clears throat> I wonder if that Romans passage is in a similar type of thing where it says God revealed his wrath in the giving over. Yeah. Is that what it's it's is that how you take that passage to mean is it it's not it's a it's a wrath of omission not a wrath of commission. Yeah. Where God's just releasing you and saying now you're going to experience life and the consequences of your rebellious nature without my grace and my hand being a part of your life. Yeah, and and I think there's, you know, it this gives insight into a passage of scripture that initially kind of puzzled me, and it's a famous one, the story of the prodigal son. Mm. You remember the account in Luke chapter 15? Mm. Uh, a wealthy man had two sons. The youngest came to him and said, uh, divide the inheritance with me. So the father gave him his inheritance early. Uh, usually you'd have to wait for the father to die. And he went out to a far country and wasted it all on prodigal, that is excessive living. Uh, and when he had blown everything on wine, women, and song, uh, suddenly a famine hit the land, and uh, all of his good-time buddies had no more use for him. Uh, he was starving. He hired himself out to a man in the country to feed pigs. Now, it doesn't get any lower to 
than that if you're a Jewish person mm-hmm. feeding pigs. And it says the pods he was using to feed the swine started to look good to him. Mm. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is this. And you, you know the rest of the story. He comes to himself, says, in my father's house, even the servants have food and despair here. I'm dying of hunger. I'll go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. No longer worried that you to be called your son. Take me back as one of your hired servants. And and so when he was a long way off, we're told the father saw him, ran down the road, embraced him, kissed him, said, uh, you know, get a clean robe for him, uh, sandals for his feet, a ring for his hand. Uh, let us rejoice and be glad for this son of mine who was dead is alive. He was lost and he's found. Uh, you know, the big question that comes up in that story is this. If the father really loved that kid, he had to have known by that time what kind of character his kid had. And he had to have a pretty good idea by that time what would happen if he gave that kid uh, the share of the inheritance at that mm. point. So if the father loved that kid, why do you let him go? Hmm. That's profound because I, if I thought my son would end up in a situation like that, I would do everything to prevent him from doing that. Right. Which might be bad parenting. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure the story of the prodigal son was intended to be a parenting manual, <laughs> but it does tell us something. The son comes back, he's restored, but then the older son, hmm. who was still out in the fields, here's this party going on, and they said, what's the party about? And they go, oh, well, this brother of yours is back, and you know, your father's received him safe and sound, and he's knocking at her into the party, and he's mad. Hmm. And the father comes out, And uh, he said, look, all this time I've served you. I've not disobeyed a single commandment of yours. And when this son of yours, notice not my brother, but it's this son of yours, blows everything you have on prodigal living, you slay the fatted calf for him. You've never even given me a young goat Mm -hmm. so I could make merry with my friends. And the father says, you know, it's right for us to uh, rejoice now. You're my son, and all that I have is yours. But this brother of yours was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and behold, he's alive again. And you know, the fascinating thing about that parable is we never find out whether the older brother ever sought the father's way. We never find out if he went into the party or not, or was reconciled to his brother. And I think there's a reason for that, Hmm. because it's always an open question. You know, the the big uh, issue that we come down to at the end of this parable, and, and I guess uh, no uh, less a person than, uh, than uh, Tolstoy himself said that the parable of the prodigal son was the greatest short story ever written in human history, because it is so profound, and it just gets down to our hearts. Which one of these two ended up with a right relationship with the father? Was it the one who never strayed, quote-unquote, and dutifully did everything that he was asked? But then when push came to shove, didn't share the father's heart? Or was it the guy who made all the mistakes and finally hit bottom and came back and realized what he finally had? Hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the, the question, you know, if the father loved him, why did he let him go? Maybe the father realized that the only way that he would really have his son's heart, maybe he would have external obedience. Uh, maybe he would keep him safe and sound within the parameters of his estate. But he'd never have a relationship with his son, hmm. you know. So, you hmm. know, it's the, the the big question is, uh, God is more interested in hearts than anything else. And hmm. sometimes, He'll let us go, hmm. and sometimes He will, even as believers, allow us to experience the consequences of our own actions hmm. 
in order for us to truly have a relationship with him. Yeah. And it reminds me of a quote. I think it was Malcolm Muggeridge. I don't, I'm not quite sure, but it's something goes along the lines of, uh, if God is dead, and this is of course the idea that, that a culture or society says no to God. I don't believe in you. We're going to take prayer to schools. We're going to take the value that uh, human beings are given by the nature of being created in God's image. If God is dead, someone's going to have to take him, take his place. It's either the drive for pleasure, or the drive for power. Uh, I think it goes something like erotomania or megalomania, uh, the clenched <laughs> fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea is that either people are going to just live in wanton pleasure like the prodigal son did, blew his inheritance and ended up with nothing, or people are going to get the king they wish they never got. <laughs> They're yeah. going to get uh, totalitarian power, and, uh, well, we know how that's worked out in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. So fascinating stuff. So is God punishing America? Yeah. The big question is, what is his motivation? Mm. And what's our response? So there's, we got one question, but I, I'd like to get your take on this passage. I, uh, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ International, now called Crew, uh, for many years serving under the Andre Cole ministry, as well as the Jesus Film Project, working with them, doing uh, missions projects. And Bill Bright launched a huge campaign in the 90s uh, about fasting and praying as, as a people for our nation. And this was the passage that they always um, sort of used yeah. as the as the main thing. And this is Second Chronicles seven, fourteen. Uh, my people who are called by my name, if my people who are called by my name, uh, humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. How? I, I mean, obviously this is contextually about Israel, but is there, if 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 believers in the United States, as, as, as the body of Christ, were to push a movement like Bill Bright had attempted to uh, on a national scale like that, is that something that is uh, a valid interpretation of this passage? And is that something that we could encourage as believers to say, hey, let's, let's pray for our nation. Just We should be doing that anyway. Yeah, We should be praying for our leaders. Um, but specifically, let's pray for our nation so that uh, God's wrath is not revealed anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the issue comes up, you know, what about fasting and, and prayer in the life of believers? You know, the, the interesting thing is fasting is something that we see that was par for the course as far as the average Jewish person of Jesus' day. In fact, uh, we're told in uh, Luke chapter 13, the famous account of the, uh, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, the Pharisee boasted he fasted twice a week. Uh, you know, there were fast days. Um, the uh, idea of uh, Tish B'Av, even in Israel mm. today, uh, the commemoration of the destruction of uh, Solomon's temple and uh, Herod's temple, uh, both of those are days where people will fast. Yom Kippur, you're supposed to fast as a way of showing brokenness over your heart. So the question is, are Christians supposed to fast? Well, uh, it does seem like there is a place for fasting in the Christian life. Uh, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14, we're told the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to him, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? For the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
In other words, after Jesus dies, resurrects, goes to heaven, fasting is going to return in some sense in the lives of believers. Acts chapter 13, we were told that uh, the group of church leaders that met at Antioch were fasting and ministering to the Lord when the Lord spoke to them and said, set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work that I had for them. So it does appear that in the gospel of Jesus that they will fast. We see in the book of Acts 13, the church fasting. Don't really see too many instructions about fasting in the epistles. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people would say, well, because of that, you know, because it's not really something that's emphasized, it's something that you can sort of take or leave. But uh, wasn't there an, an attempt at exorcism that Jesus said, well, these kind of spirits can only be kicked out by prayer and fasting? Right, right. But that would indicate that that was just part and parcel of their life going in. It's mm. not like, oh, I've encountered this demonic entity. Wow. I better fast. Let's mm. see, five minutes. I haven't eaten. Now I better come back. You know, uh, you know. It just prayer and fasting would indicate that you were someone that was earnestly seeking God, and that to me is the issue. Uh, you know, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about uh, that when you fast, you're not to be like the hypocrites who, when they fast, put on a long face and dishevel themselves so they might be seen by others fasting. But he says, when you fast paraphrasing here, do it in such a way that nobody else knows that you're fasting, your father who sees in secret will will reward you Mm -hmm. openly. That's the troubling principle to me. Is it wrong to seek the Lord in fasting and prayer? Well, apparently it was done in a group at Antioch, so if someone like Bill Bright or, you know, say a pastor of a church has said, you know, we're really going to seek the Lord about an issue that's going on. Seek the Lord for something that's happening in our community. Seek the Lord for something that's going on in our country. And, you know, I would just encourage you, you know, forego a meal. And, And instead of having lunch, spend some time seeking the Lord in prayer. You know, something like that. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with that, but like a lot of things, uh, these things can sort of take on a legalistic life of their mm-hmm. own. I, I remember there was a fad, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, called uh, the, the, the Jesus fast. You know, that Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days, fasted and was hungry. So we really want to be spiritual. <laughs> We're going to fast for 40 days. And it was the 40-day Jesus fast thing that was going on. I remember I was uh, teaching outreach uh, Bible study uh, for coaches at the U of A. And, and uh, this uh, fellow who was uh, one of the coaches came in and, and said, oh, man. He goes, I've been on this Jesus fast thing, and and it was just so hard for me because there I was with my my cup of juice, and and it was Thanksgiving dinner, and everybody was having all this great food, and there I was with my juice. And I was like, oh, no. You know, first of all, you told me about it. You know, I'm impressed by you. In a sense, you're doing it to be seen by men. Secondly, you're complaining about what a drag this fast was for you. Uh, You know, that you got into this thing where you're just kind of sitting there with your cup of juice at this Thanksgiving meal and this pathetic picture and all of this. Um, You know, the the thing we got to be careful of with fasting is this, is if you fast and you fast because you're like, man, Lord, I really just want to seek you. I really want to, you know, pass up, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be food. It can be anything that you pass on that's part of your, your life to seek the Lord. You know, that's, that's the main thing. And, and I want to seek you. Uh, and it's just between you and the Lord, and it's for the purpose mm-hmm. of prayer. Then, then that's a beautiful thing. But 
you know, I, I went through a struggle with that personally in my walk with God because I kind of got into that for a while early on in my walk with God. And it was like there was this sense that, you know, okay, like Monday's my fast day and I'm, I'm going to fast. I'm not going to have anything solid to eat till dinner and, you know, just have liquids or whatever. And there were a couple of times where I violated that fast. And I felt like, oh, man, I'm just not as close to the Lord as I was when I was fasting. I felt, I felt like convicted, like, yeah. man, Lord, I really let you down and all this stuff. You know, and, and I'm sure the Lord just looks in and goes, you know, have a hamburger, kid. You know, it's not your stomach or what goes into it that matters mm-hmm. or even withholding things for your stomach. It's the heart that we bring to our walk yeah. with God. And I think that's the most important thing. Is it okay to... to if my people, if they were called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear their prayer and, uh, and heal their land. Is there anything wrong with fasting and praying that God would turn around things in the United States? No, not at all. Where that passage becomes problematic, twofold. Number one, context. Who was that said to, by the way? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I have to read it in context. <laughs> well, in context, this was the dedication of Solomon's temple. This is what God spoke to King Solomon at the dedication of the temple. Mm. By definition, my people who are called by my name is Israel. Mm -hmm. And it was about the idea of praying, and that was why people like Daniel were so hot to trot about not only praying, but facing Jerusalem, facing the place Mm -hmm. where the temple even was, as far as as their prayer life was concerned. Well, I knew it was to the people of Israel, but does the principle apply to God's people all the time? Well, here's the problem. You know, if God's people seek the Lord and pray that there would be a huge turnaround in the United States, how's that turnaround going to happen? So God is going to uh, reach down his hand and give uh, Joe Biden a spiritual whammy (laughs) and say, no, I don't want you to be pro-abortion anymore. We're going Mm -hmm. to turn this around. Uh, how, be, how's that going to? How is anything going to change in this country? It's going to be obeying those other passages that say that you are light and salt, that you are ambassadors. I've given you the ministry of reconciliation, and that means going out and representing Christ and proclaiming the gospel to all nations. Yeah, and the key thing is is this. There's an old saying that uh, if the people lead, the leaders will follow. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. the the okay. leadership in our country. You know, they they're not dumb. Uh, they got all kinds of pollsters working overnight to try to take the temperature of what's going on in this country. Uh, if there is a massive movement toward faith in Jesus Christ in this country, among the average working stiff, you know, the people in Washington, they don't give a rip about anything I have to say or think or anything like mm-hmm. that. But if we really want to change things, if we change this world one life at a time by leading people to faith mm-hmm. in Christ, Sooner or later, that has a, a cultural effect. We've seen that in the two great awakenings. Uh, you know, we've seen that in the Jesus movement. You know, there there can be a real impact that happens as a result of lives being touched and changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But it has to happen, as we say in the opening part of this program, one heart at, uh, at yeah. a time. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we're spinning our wheels. We can't legislate people into righteousness. Right. Yeah, it's, it's like you said, uh, helping one individual 
by reflecting Christ in our own lives and then proclaiming the gospel to one individual at a time as best you can and and then transforming a society by changing the hearts of each individual. Yeah, and and I uh, the names will be changed here for, you know, privacy reasons, but a great example of this principle uh, was a uh, family that went to the church. Uh, this was uh, before uh, this couple got married, but they started coming to the church, and uh, they heard the gospel, and uh, the woman responded and got baptized. And she, uh, you know, again, they got married, and uh, they had their first child, and uh, just a beautiful, wonderful uh, child they had. And, and uh, later this woman told me that uh, when they came to church, she had just found out that she was pregnant. She wasn't sure she really wanted to marry the guy that was the father and uh, was uh, actively doing research about where she was going to get an abortion. Hmm. But because she made a decision to receive Jesus as her Savior, hmm. that changed not only her life, but it changed the life of the baby that would be born wow. because that baby wouldn't have been born any other way. And, and uh, I, think, I think that's how we change things in this country, one heart mm-hmm. at a time. Well, Casey Rowe asked, do Christians have any power to release someone bound by Satan? I've heard that phrase, bound by Satan, but is it Scripture? Well, what do you think? <laughs> I've been pontificating well, I, here I, for a while. <laughs> I, I remember... Uh, my one of my mentors would often joke when you're in a prayer meeting and someone you know would just instead of talking to god would all of a sudden start talking to satan and satan i bind you and uh and my mentor he would joke and say well why does everyone keep praying to bind him and who keeps letting him out (laughs) who keeps letting him go he's bound if we have that kind of authority to bind satan in that way then who keeps letting him go and it comes from that binding and loosing passage where Peter uh, is told by Jesus that, uh, you know, all authority has been given to me, and uh, whatever you uh, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. And, and so believers have taken or extrapolated uh, that, what, that lesson, what Jesus was trying to communicate there, and have said, well, we have the power and authority of Almighty God, and therefore... Uh, and then and there's two sides of this coin. There's the perception of what our authority is spiritually, and then there's our perception of the authority that Satan has over the believer's life. So, for example, if, if a believer is struggling with lust, they sometimes will think, well, Satan is obviously doing this to me, and I need to bind him so that I, don't, I no longer struggle with lust. And I think that might be a false conclusion because Jesus said, out of the heart come lusts, out of the heart come these deceitfulnesses. Uh, Satan is in the world, and he's tempting us through the mechanisms of the world, through through the worldliness. <clears throat> but uh, in the end, each and every one of us are responsible for what comes out of our heart, what we dwell on, what we... You had talked about that a couple days ago, about having the right mentality and how do we have a pure thought life. So I've heard the phrase, and I I personally have never really come across a clear scriptural teaching that believers have the authority to bind Satan. That's not to say that uh, followers of Jesus did not have the authority to cast a demon out of a demon-possessed person or to say that the evil one cannot touch me. You know, 1 John 5, it says that greater... uh, 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 
he who is born of God does not sin because he was begotten of God, keeps him and the evil one cannot touch him or does not touch him. So there's this idea that if I'm born again, he who is born of God uh, does not sin, meaning I'm no longer uh, a slave to sin. It doesn't mean that I won't uh, have sins. Yeah, habitually. But yeah, I won't yeah. be living a life yeah. of sin. Yeah meaning continuous rebellion against God, because he who is begotten, meaning Jesus, the begotten one, <clears throat> keeps him, and the evil one does not touch them. So if, if Satan cannot touch me, and I'm responsible for my own thought life and what comes out of my heart, uh, and we know that the evil one is not going to be bound until judgment, then I don't think that the binding is really a biblical concept, but that's that's yeah. just my initial reaction to yeah. the idea. Yeah, I think where people get it is uh, it's a passage in Mark, uh, also in Matthew and Luke, but Mark chapter 3, uh, the scribes came down from Jerusalem and said that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub, uh, the ruler of the demons, and by that power he cast out demons. He said, uh, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against him himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Hmm. Uh, you know, this idea of binding the strong man there, I don't necessarily think what Jesus was getting at was some sort of how-to in terms of exorcism. Uh, but I think what he was saying is this, that uh, Satan had come up against a power that was greater than he. And that's why Jesus could cast out demons. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because Satan was using Jesus to cast out demons. That would be completely counterproductive to anything he wanted to do. That was, that's the yeah. point he was making, yeah. But uh, the idea of no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So the idea behind that would be the idea of putting the person that would be defending that house in a place where they couldn't defend it anymore. And some will take that step and say, okay, uh, so... You know, God's given us the king, keys to the kingdom. Whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And so they will say, you know, if we're aware that an individual is suffering some kind of demonic deception or oppression, uh, we can take authority over that. Even in full-blown possession, uh, in the name of Jesus, we can cast out demons because, in a sense, the strong man has been bound. Not because of our incantation, mm. uh, because we said the right words. And, and this is really where you've got to be careful about some of these books like The Bondage Breaker and others, because, you know, among other things they will say in those books is that sometimes people don't get deliverance because they didn't pray mm -hmm. the prayer for deliverance in the right order. Hmm. You know, and if you don't do that, then you're in trouble. It's, sound, uh, it's starting yeah. to sound more like sorcery. Yeah. So, uh, so what does it mean to bind the wicked one? Probably the best definition is, well, you know, Satan is not a spiritual free agent. He can't do anything that he wants to do. As a matter of fact, in the book of Job, we see that Satan has to, in a sense, get clearance from God before he can even lay a hand on anything that Job even possesses, let alone Job himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I think it kind of comes back to simplify it as this, is if I'm aware that there's a satanic dimension to, say, a situation I'm involved with, maybe even a, a case of, uh, of either oppression or even out-and-out uh, -out possession, you know, the best advice I've ever heard came from Greg Laurie. If mm. Satan knocks on your door, send Jesus to answer it. You know, uh, in James we're told, uh, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons believe and tremble. Well, what makes the demons tremble? 
it ain't this guy. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> I mean, demons don't find me the least bit intimidating, mm-hmm. but Christ who dwells in me terrifies them. And because of that, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. In the book of Mark, we are told these signs shall follow those who believe. It doesn't say these, those who believe will follow signs. Mm-hmm. But we clearly mm-hmm. see that uh, God isn't going to send us into enemy-occupied territory without every resource we need to end up being victorious. The caution I give people, though, is this. You know, when we say, oh, well, you know, Satan got the upper hand because I didn't bind him. Well, no, you know, I mean, you can, you know, yell insults at Satan all you want and, you know, come up with your incantations and and your words for exorcism till the cows come home and Satan be more than happy to to uh, indulge you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one guy who said that um, the way you get power over demons is by asking them their name. And until you ask their name, you don't have any power over the demon. And And all I could imagine uh, was seen in the spiritual realm, like two demons looking at each other and going, what do you bet I can get this guy to believe that he'll have power over me if uh, he knows my name? Uh, I, I don't know. See, let's, oh, whatever you do, don't ask me my name because then you'll have power over me. Oh, what's your name, demon? And I've got, and then the, the whole false doctrine gets built yeah. on that sort of thing. So the, the most important thing in spiritual warfare is to realize that there's only one commander of the armies of heaven, that he has given us all the resources necessary Mm -hmm. through his indwelling Holy Spirit to take on any of the power uh, of the wicked one. But it doesn't come down to coming up with the right name or the right format uh, any more than, uh, say, in your prayer life. You know, God would have really liked to have answered your prayers, but you just formatted it wrong. You didn't say in Jesus' name at the end, so I'm sorry your prayer got booted. When you were baptized, the words were someone reversed the words by accident, so you were never saved in the first place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think that's the safest place to leave it. Mm. Got time for one more? Uh, well, we don't have any, but yeah, we. oh, actually we do. Um, this is a good one. Did Jesus have the power to change the weather? Well, Mr. Smiths. he certainly did uh, when he calmed the storm. In fact, uh, we're told that uh, when Jesus was awakened by his disciples, who thought they were going down for the last time, green water breaking over the bow of their boat, Peter screaming, do you not even care that we're as good as dead? Jesus said to the storm, be muzzled, literally. Mm. Not be still, but be muzzled. And the winds and, the, and the, the disciples said, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? So I would say from that passage, yes. Awesome. <laughs> so. Well, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week for more of your questions. God's Word. Thank you so much, Adrian, for pinch hitting. Pray that Sean feels better. Yeah. And uh, may the Lord bless you and give you a great rest of your day in the Lord. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.